1: Hello everyone, welcome to this New Books Network podcast. My name is Leo Nascow and today I'm joined by the geopolitical and trade academic and consultant Dr. Jeff Pigman. Jeff specializes in studying the political economy and diplomacy of international trade and leads a US-based global strategy and political consultancy advising businesses, governments and other global institutions. In addition to his consulting work, Jeff is an established academic and is currently a research associate at the University of Lausanne in Switzerland and is an honorary fellow at the University of Birmingham in the United Kingdom. He's a prolific writer, having written a number of books and articles on international trade and diplomatic institutions, and today we're talking about the most recent one, Negotiating Our Economic Future, Trade, Technology and Diplomacy. It's a broad and eye-opening book about how the institutions of international trade and diplomacy intersect and how they affect and are affected by technology, with a focus on how leaders can tackle today's challenges from climate change to artificial intelligence. Thank you very much for joining me all the way from the US, Jeff. I wanted to start by asking about you actually, before we jump into the book, You've had a really exciting career at the intersection of academia and business, and I'd love to hear about the journey, some of the organizations and people that you've worked with, and how it all led to you writing this book.
0: Well, first off, Leo, thanks very much for inviting me to join you on the podcast today. Uh, It's a great pleasure, Uh, and uh, I've I've uh, enjoyed uh, reading and listening to uh, some of. Uh, the earlier work on your site. So I'm, I'm very happy to be able to make a contribution uh, to it. So um, I grew up in Washington, D.C., uh, with uh, two parents who uh, worked on Capitol Hill and in government, um, at interestingly, at the intersection of, of international trade uh, and diplomacy. So this was something, I guess they say the apple doesn't fall very far from the tree. I guess that was the case you know, with me in, in, in this situation. I have worked um, on from going way back from on the hill uh, in Washington. Uh, I've worked for an international law firm, Millbank Tweed way back doing, doing uh, uh, research on, on trade regulation and legislation. Um, I did my master's degree at SICE uh, uh, at Johns Hopkins so I spent a year in in uh, Bologna Italy learning about about uh, European trade and investment issues there international economics year uh, back in Washington I did my my doctorate at Oxford so so uh, there I focused on on um, uh, hegemony and trade liberalisation looking at, at uh, UK trade policy in the late 19th century and and uh, U.S. trade policy in the late 20th century, uh, some similarities and differences, how large uh, powers uh, deal with with the rest of the world catching up to them in the trade environment and, and when they face a series of policy choices between uh, liberal trade and protection and what do they do and what, what policies have worked and which ones haven't so much. So, so with that kind of academic background, uh, I went back and forth between uh, teaching and research at institutions like the University of Birmingham and University of Kent at Brussels, Bennington College. I've also worked on Wall Street for a large Canadian investment bank, CIBC World Markets, uh, as, as my area then was, uh, again dealing with uh, where, where I was able to explore uh, firsthand some of my Um, research interests in global firms as diplomatic actors, non-state diplomatic actors, how do they interact with governments, multilateral institutions, uh, and so forth. Uh, So I've had a variety of of experiences both on the academic side and, you know, on the policy side, including in in recent years, uh, working for a lot of very interesting uh, consulting clients, uh, most recently the Commonwealth Secretariat, uh, for whom I wrote a report last year on the impact of this move to virtual and hybrid uh, trade negotiations that's been caused by the pandemic, how that has worked out at the WTO, and in particular how it's affected uh, small states, uh, least developed countries, and sub-Saharan African countries. What have they needed to do to adapt, and what have been the major problems they've faced, and and possible uh, routes to improve their negotiating situation at the WTO. So I've had an interesting, an interesting career up to this point.
1: It sounds really fascinating, and. Then we have this book, "Negotiating Our Economic Future." What's what were you we trying to achieve with it? What are the main ideas that, that you set out to explore?
0: Well, okay, I guess um, what um, what prompted me to really write this book to get into this was was the sort of the, the series of of uh, shocks that we uh, kind of hit in the global economy in the middle of the last decade that kind of came to a focus in 2016 a couple of really hard knocks for a lot of us um brexit and trump um and this really i as i started to think you know how how what were all the factors that really caused this to to come and you know club us over the back of the head you know one of the things that really struck me which had never happened before hadn't come come to my attention but was was firms using artificial intelligence to micro-target voters. Um, And this kind of came to light with the Cambridge Analytica scandal uh, with this this, uh, uh, political consulting firm, you know, using Facebook uh, to identify voters and to come up with these detailed profiles uh, of voters um, you know, they they tried to accumulate every bit of information they could up from the internet about particular particular voters and, and use it to to you know advertise to them in ways as such as to draw out more extreme uh, voting behaviors on their part. And as I thought about this, I realized that this had really changed history in a lot of ways. And one of the upshots of 2016, Brexit and Trump, was that that it uh, it profoundly undermined the the major system of alliances that that have enabled uh, global politics and the global economy to function in the post-World War II period. Uh, It it threatened liberal trade and capital flows, among among other things. so this was, was deeply disturbing to me. And even then I didn't see to what extent this was playing into the hands of, of autocrats like Vladimir Putin, but, but I see that even more clearly now than I did when I, I started all this. And it made me realize that, that um, communications technologies, information technologies had changed much more profoundly over the last 20 years than I had thought uh, before that. And it made me, I realized that I needed to learn a lot more and I needed to think a lot more deeply um, about how we got here and and where we're headed. What's the the implications of all all this stuff? So it actually led me to sit down, spend some time reading a lot of the futurist literature, which has been, was fascinating. Uh, uh, Folks like uh, McAfee and Brynjolfsson written about the the technology uh, future uh, as we um, are headed into it um, so I wanted to understand thus what what was the imp- the impact of technological change on trade and diplomacy on trade in particular but but also in the diplomacy that makes uh, trade possible and keeps it running That's
1: fascinating and yeah I think time to time to dive in we've got these three different areas trade diplomacy technology and I think to kick off, I want to explore that relationship between trade and diplomacy. I think to to most of the people listening, it'd be quite clear how diplomacy affects trade. Countries get together, they agree on tariffs, regulations, and then that affects trade. But also, we can go the other way, can't we? And the way countries trade with each other can really affect their diplomatic relations. And we see that particularly clearly um, with respect to Russia's invasion of Ukraine and sanctions have really affected uh, Russia's stance in the world. I wonder if you could go into a little bit more detail about what that relationship looks like, what the what the logic is, what happens on that journey, and and perhaps also showing a bit of light on what we really mean by diplomatic
0: relations and trade relations as well. Sure. Um, well, let me start with this idea of trade. I mean, what we talk about about today as as trade um, is um, people buying and selling. Stuff, people buying and selling goods, people buying and selling services, and this is happening all the time, every day, everywhere. Whether it's just um, across town or whether it's across the globe, um, it's still, it's all at, at root, it's all, it's all trade. It's, it's, it's um, exchange behavior. People making themselves better off by doing deals, tiny deals, buying a bar of soap, uh, you know, buying a supercomputer, buying software as a service. Um, what makes it more complicated is the existence of borders and of governments. Now, on the one hand, you can't really have trade—you can't really have markets without some form of governance, because otherwise, you know, contracts aren't safe. And you know, I might buy something from you, and then you might hit me over the head with a club and and take it back as soon as I've given you the money. Um, so, uh, you know, we need governments to do that. But borders make trade more complicated. So this is where where we get into uh, diplomacy because we need diplomacy um, to make uh, rules governing cross-border trade. And we need diplomacy to keep enforcing those rules once the rules are made, make sure that the rules are fair to everyone and that enforcement is is fair to everyone. Now, cutting off trade uh, is one of the most powerful uh, diplomatic sanctions that we have short of war itself. And this, in particular, is what we're seeing uh, now uh, with respect to Russia. I mean, gradually, you know, step by step, each of the countries in the world uh, that cares about the the, the terrible uh, implications of Putin making war on Ukraine is gradually cutting off trade uh, with Russia, and and. If the, his war doesn't stop, soon we will get to a place where most of the, of these countries will have, have basically prohibited all trade uh, with Russia. There are a few countries in the world that are not dependent on trade at all for various reasons, but most countries are to some degree, and Russia is uh, actually quite dependent on trade. Um, former the late Senator John McCain, you know, once said, you know, Russia is a gas station with nukes, and it's kind of true. They need to sell uh, oil, gas, um, and other com- commodities, high-value commodities, um, in order to pay for a lot of the consumer goods and a lot of the technology that they don't make at home for themselves.
1: Mm, and I think, I think is really visible. I think how that relationship is is impactful is really clear to see. I think we've. All seen articles about how Russia is sort of running out of materials to import, struggling to export its oil, and all that leads to elite sort of exerting pressure. They they want to deal. They want to they want to trade. The trade is about people bettering themselves, and by cutting that off, you can really affect how countries and countries behave. But Indeed. the big change in in the past two decades, as you touch on, sort of you mentioned software as a service. Technology is completely changing the game. How, in your mind, what are the big impacts of technology on, on the relationship between trade and, and diplomacy?
0: Right, so as you um, point out, Leo, tech has changed the nature of trade itself dramatically just over the last two decades. It's been changing it throughout history, as, um, but but this uh, change has accelerated and these, these last 20 years or so have been uh, particularly significant in this regard. If we think of trade as as cross-border flows, um, whenever something crosses a border and somebody else pays for it with something on the other side of the border, that's um, cross-border trade has happened. Um, and traditionally, we thought of trade as either trade in goods um, or trade in services. So, you know, goods being, you know, wheat or steel or automobiles or or whatever, services being you know, legal services, um, education services, consulting services, engineering services, et cetera. Um, And then if we really wanna expand that that definition to cover all um, cross-border flows for which people are paying, capital can also be seen as a a type of a good. So when cross-border capital flows are a form of trade too. Um, Labor also can be thought of um, as a type of service that when labor crosses the border, either traditionally by, by somebody going to another country to work, um, or more recently by, by labor being sold across the border uh, digitally, electronically, um, we can think of labor as, as one of these services um, too. So this brings us to the tech piece. Um, um, tech has boosted cross-border flows of all kinds of things, but in particular, They've trade as boosted flows of data, information and knowledge. So these cross-border flows of, of, of data, information and knowledge, and now essentially we hear the term big data. So, so we get that a lot of data are flowing across borders. Mm-hmm. This blurs the traditional um, distinction between goods uh, and services. Um, and I think you'll find that even traditional goods today uh, and traditional services are now infused uh with uh technology so you know an automobile is uh it's shipped from from korea to to the uk is loaded with chips there's just all kinds of software uh on board um it gets the 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 chips the software connects to the internet directly from the vehicle and refreshes itself Uh, Now, which is, you know, pretty interesting. I mentioned software as a service platform as a service, you know, you can you can rent all these services if you don't have it on your laptop computer or on your phone, whatever you can rent it from a company in whatever country in the world you're in that service gets provided to you. And And either way, whenever that happens a uh, 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 data information and knowledge are crossing a border and a payment is crossing a border from you to them wherever their their bank account is in return for it so so um, you know even things like agriculture now are um, are fully infused with with technology uh, so agricultural trade is is dependent uh, on tech to, to function in the way it does and what this has led to is that um, traditional trade rules as defined originally by bilateral trade agreements, um, then by the the multilateral general agreement on tariffs and trade from 1947, the WTO uh, came into operation in 1995, made the gap bigger. These rules have not been fully adapted yet to reflect the the significance, the growing significance of, of digital trade. And that's why there's now a um, a digital trade agenda at the WTO, but they haven't they haven't taken it where it needs to go yet. But it's at least on the agenda now.
1: So what what are these agreements that have the dust on them from the 20th century? What are they What are they missing?
0: Well, what they're what they're um, they're missing. Uh, for example, just I'll give you just one example here is is that um, if there there needs to be um, uh, one of one of the, the trade agreements are uh, intended uh, to work in such a way that that um, companies in what uh, compete on a level playing field in in any market in every market, whether they're uh, located within the home country or whether they're they're um, overseas. So, so in the case of a lot, a lot of these these digital services, um, it has not been thought through yet um, how that's going to play out. Uh, in a domestic market. So, so you know, one particular case um, here, the you know, the, the EU has has uh, imposed a, a series of of um, regulations to protect uh, p- individuals' privacy in cyberspace. The EU has much more advanced uh, regulations in this than than say the United States right now. Um, so the question has been raised: um, Are U.S. firms that want to sell uh, in Europe uh, or sell digitally in Europe, uh, are they disadvantaged with respect to European firms? And the U.S. and the EU are are now negotiating on this to to at least harmonize regulations or or reach a, a digital trade agreement such that that both sides uh, agree that that firms on each side can compete fairly in the other one's markets.
1: And mm. I think trade is obviously. Com- is dramatically expanding um technology even technological advancements are dramatically expanding the, the volume of trade that happens but we've touched on it a little bit but i think it's useful to make explicit that it's all, also just making it a lot more complex right it's happening on the internet where borders are a little bit harder to define and going forward we've got things like a metaverse which bullish or not don't know don't know your thoughts on it but stuff is happening where borders don't really exist and even the countries themselves are less defined and that makes things a lot more complex uh,
0: it does it does indeed make things uh a lot a lot more complex and and uh, uh more ambiguous um so i guess you know i could take that in a couple of directions um but i think you know one direction is is to think about well so so what does it mean uh for the nature of diplomacy um, and uh you know among other things it's 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 changed uh the nature of, the, of diplomatic actors themselves of of who does what what constitutes diplomacy who what what sorts of actors participate in things that we call diplomacy in the old days it always used to be the governments of nation states uh uh for several centuries but but um uh the space is much bigger now including uh, we talk about global firms uh, engaging in diplomacy. We talk about, about civil society organizations, NGOs doing it. We talk about uh, um, international institutions, the UN, the WTO, uh, and so forth um, doing it. And why does it make sense to, what, what, what is it that's diplomacy about what, what uh, these different types of organizations, of actors are doing? It's that they, they are communicating about interests and negotiating about interests and re- representing themselves to others about interests that are, are vital to them, um, and uh, thus having establishing relationships that are ongoing as a result of, of that. And, and I think the communications piece is, is what's really important you know, to look at here. And I look back at this thing um, that emerged, it was named in the 1960s called public diplomacy. And this is this is about the nature of diplomatic communication. In the old days, uh, diplomacy always took place either behind closed doors, privately in secret, high level negotiations, or else it took place at, at state events, state dinners and, and so forth, where issues like protocol were important, who sat next to whom and, and who got to say the oil toast and these kinds of things. But, but um, diplomacy has changed a lot. And um, public when this thing of public diplomacy was named, it was first noticed that the governments began talking to, to the publics in foreign countries, as well as just the governments of other countries to try to advance their foreign policy agendas. Um, and that was interesting to people from early on when they noticed this was happening. But in practice, um, it was considered to be only a small piece of diplomacy um, overall. Um, now, today, uh, you know, 50 years later, 60 years later, uh, it's almost been stood on its head. I mean, I would say that public diplomacy or diplomacy in public, if you like, is 80% of overall diplomacy today, and you know, it takes place. You know, all kinds of places everywhere from, you know, on on national TV news to to Twitter, you know, the the, the emergence of social media has changed, you know, everything about about diplomacy um, in many ways. And one of the ways it has um, had a major impact is by empowering the non-state diplomatic actors so that everyone, it's now easy for everyone to talk to everyone else and and audiences aren't even just um, foreign audiences, but in a sense, they're as much domestic to where a government is or where a firm is uh, as they are um, uh, foreign. And you know, you the, the, use a perverse example that's come out over this, this past week of, of where a, a video inside Russia was leaked of, of Putin's warlord, Ramzan Kadyrov. Um, attempting to um, shoot basketball hoops on a basketball court and failing miserably. He couldn't even get the ball near the hoop. And some people politely clapped and other people politely laughed. And it was said, well, how did that video get released on, on social media? And, you know, it seemed pretty obvious that earlier in the week, Kadyrov had been taking pot shots at at Putin's uh, spokesperson, uh, Dmitry Peskov, his own Yosef Goebbels. And you know, this was if nothing else, it had to have been been Peskov's revenge against Kadyrov to to release this this video, which of course, you know, undercuts the Russian. Uh, sort of credibility and appearance of prowess in in this this war that they have not carried off very well uh, at all, to say the least. So so this is how the nature of diplomatic communication has has changed. Even that set, sent sent um, diplomatic messages to uh, and clearly to the the uh, the opponents of, of 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 Putin. You know, if anything, it incentivizes you know Gerasimov to bump off Putin and and head to Ankara to sign a deal with with Zelensky to, you know, end the war and end the sanctions and, and uh, uh, get back to, to some semblance of normal life. But, you know, um, we'll see. Uh, we'll see how that plays out.
1: Yeah, I think there are two things there. For the first point, which I think is really important, is you talked about the non-state actors that are emboldened by technology and become really significant players. You have, so you have these new players in in the diplomatic field that can affect things, and then so that so these people are, these businesses are going around, and they typically are businesses, but they're also sort of civil society organisations. They're going around, and they have their own agendas. Um, and in, in addition, it just makes the whole thing a lot more complex because you can get a video of a of a minister playing basketball, and all of a sudden, goes viral on TikTok. Um, so let's talk. I want to talk about the let's talk about the first side of that first. You have these. Basically, I suppose tech-enabled technology companies that are huge, and obviously not just technology companies, just because because technology also enables other companies just to be to be huge. They become a lot more significant than they could have been fifty years ago. um, By and large, so do you see companies like this playing a larger role in diplomacy, and how does it affect the ability of states to to follow their own agendas?
0: Right. Well, um, you know, good question there. I mean, uh, this is a really interesting piece. So, so for, for a, quite a while now, certainly in, in, in the past century, you know, uh, at least since the Second World War, global firms that have achieved a certain size have emerged as diplomatic actors in their own right. Now, that's not saying that, that, that a firm is like a state in, in, in a lot of key respects, because it's not. Um, but what makes it a diplomatic actor? rather than just simply um, a supplicant firm lobbying its, its home country government for, for uh, items on its on its interest agenda. Um, a large for a firm that becomes a diplomatic actor is, is differentiated by its size because it actually has has leverage in various respects um, over governments just as governments may have leverage over it in that, um, you know, it, governments want things from the firm as much as the firm wants things from from uh, governments. Um, so governments have to take them seriously in terms of negotiations, and firms, in order to to be effective at this, um, have to move beyond simply hiring lobbying firms in their in their um, in a gov- in a, a capital city. But they need to to basically create their own foreign ministries inside the firm. And one of the great examples recently is that the the former uh, UK liberal Democrat leader, Nick Clegg, has been made effectively the foreign minister of of Meta, the parent company of Facebook. So so Clegg is now the the global face of Facebook, which makes it um, presumably less toxic than having Mark Zuckerberg himself out there trying to speak uh, uh, for Facebook because you know Clegg at least has a, a set of political skills that, that Zuckerberg does not um, so what makes the tech firms different from other large firms in this case is that you know among other things they have a whole different set of, of issues that, that um, to negotiate with governments over than say um, you know BP ExxonMobil Unilever uh, you know big, big big firms in other in other sectors and you know one of them um, One of these issues is, is, which I'll come back to, is is the the whole issue about to what extent these firms are abusing monopoly power uh, within uh, countries and across borders, but also issues about privacy, um, uh, the power over data, and who owns uh, the data of of individuals. Uh, This all ties into this whole issue about cross-border flows of data, information, and knowledge. Uh, And the fact that these firms, suddenly these technology firms, have the capacity to influence uh, directly uh, the politics of individual countries and the political behavior of citizens within those countries. So so there's a lot at stake um, for these these firms and in this new kind of firm state uh, diplomacy. And I think in future, we're going to see even more of these different issues uh, bubble to the surface. Um, issues about control of artificial intelligence and about control of super intelligence when that emerges, which is expected by a lot of scientists now to be on or around the year 2042. the relationships then we, between firms and hostile uh, governments too, we'll have to to uh, bear that in mind, governments that may be hostile to our interests. So the relationships between the government and, and large firms in China is different from the relationship between governments and large firms in Europe or North America, uh, let's say. Um, so there's that, and then there's even the issue about to what extent in future will these large firms uh, like Google or, or Meta or Amazon seek to, to increasingly lock con- consumers into becoming part of their corporate consumer ecosystems. So through incentives um, for consumers to buy only within one ecosystem, one firm's ecosystem and disincentives for them to buy uh from others so a whole kind of exclusivity uh anti-competitiveness uh framework there there are a lot of pieces as you can see there are a lot of issues out there that that, that we're going to see in firm state diplomacy in tech going forward
1: hmm. and a couple of days ago actually i was reading in in the ft of facebook's planning to bring out its own virtual currency that's going to be virtual virtual tokens that are going to be within the, the ecosystem on facebook that you can't use anywhere else i think the employees at Meta are calling it Zuckbucks, which which was the only thing in that article that brought a smile to my eye, to be honest. Um, but I suppose I want to play devil's advocate for a bit, because in some respects, having big firms that like, just throw their weight around isn't exactly new. Before sort of centuries, well, yeah, sort of 130 years ago, you had Standard Oil that was a, a huge oil company that dominated oil in the US and was... And it took the likes likes of sort of journalists and there were campaigners like Ida Tarbell who wanted to take them down. And eventually that led to things like the Sherman Act and which eventually led to those sorts of things. And perhaps are we seeing similar things today? You have people like Lena Khan at the FTC who are similarly pursuing and trying to figure out ways to manage these monopolies. Do you think there are similarities with the past or does tech completely change the game?
0: Well, as as in many of these situations, I think the answer is, is, is both to, to some degrees. To some degree, there there are there are some similarities to to uh, uh, the old days, the old world of of uh, antitrust, as as we call it in North America, competition law, and in, in, uh, in Europe and the UK. Um, but uh, there 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 are ways in which tech has has changed this. I think um, significantly. You know, also <clears throat> for one thing is um, there are a lot of different types of tech firms and different sizes of of, of tech firms. Um, But uh, one of the the ways to scale a tech business and to really become big is to create a product that not only does everyone want to use, but, but everyone ends up needing to use in particular to communicate with one another. So interoperability we're talking about. And to create this type of a product Um, It really means almost establishing um, uh, at least a temporary monopoly um, uh, of ownership over a particular type of economic activity, a particular type of communication activity, a particular type of technological activity. Um, And I say temporary because as we've now been in this game long enough, sort of since the 90s, um, the emergence of the internet uh, and so forth to, to really see... See um, how sort of temporary a number of these things uh, have been. I mean, we all we all remember the early dominance of of, of Microsoft Windows. We remember the, the 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 somewhat brief dominance of MySpace. Um, we see today the dominance of of. Um, Uh, commercial activity on a platform like Amazon. We see the the dominance that's already faded, begun to fade to some degree of of the Facebook platform, although Meta has, as you've seen, has already expanded to other platforms like Instagram and WhatsApp. We see um, the space that Twitter occupies, that um, as long as Twitter is is doing what it does, you can't really, um, nobody's coming along and saying, well, my platform is more fun this is why you know trump tried to launch truth social well people aren't finding it very truthy or very social so it seems like well, they can't even of-
1: log in there's a wait list okay. of a hundred thousand and it's it apparently They it must
0: they must be checking people's trumpista credentials before they let them in the door <laughs> <laughs> there you go so so you got all that um that sort of problem but but um uh, you know, I think it's safe to say that, that um, when when these types of, of, of temporary monopolies exist, they give the firm that has it um, bigger diplomatic leverage, at least for a, a short period of time, um, but it doesn't last forever. And, you know, the key for a firm is, it has to be the degree to which it's able to adapt to and transcend these temporary Uh, monopolies. And and you look at a firm like Microsoft, um, which was the first big tech firm to face really, well, no, that's not true. AT&T was the first big tech firm to face Major antitrust scrutiny, at least in the U.S., it was broken up and sort of put itself back together in various forms. Anyway, but Microsoft, first in the in the the um, the computer age, mm-hmm. really the 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 personal computer, individual computer age, to do to do this, Microsoft has survived and thrived by diversifying its its activities enough so that it was no longer dependent on Windows or the Internet Explorer browser, you know things like that. Um, and Microsoft is is doing just fine. you know, thank you very much. Um, you know so in future, we're going to continue to see more of, of, of this type of rising rising and falling, but it's going to be a, a responsibility um, for um, antitrust regulators, competition regulators um, to manage and look after the public uh, interest uh, in this. And as a result, certainly certainly, um, in the EU, you have, um, you know, Margaret Festacher uh, has made it her major project to make sure that these firms do not uh, trounce the public interest in their activities. And we're seeing this this new, as you point out, this new round of, of antitrust uh, push uh, here in the US, not just from the FTC with Lena Kahn, but, but um, a bipartisan push on Capitol Hill. Um, Amy Klobuchar, Senator from Minnesota, uh, Democrat and Charles Grassley, a uh, Republican of, of uh, Iowa, um, have a major antitrust reform uh bill that that may get through this difficult 2022 uh, session in Congress. Um at least a lot of us are hoping. So we'll see. Hmm. I think they're
1: really good points, noting that you know tech companies they're quite kind of quite resilient to to challenges to break them up. ATT still kicking around Microsoft, I think. Yep. With with a, the biggest acquisition of Activision Blizzard for twenty for seventy five billion, is throwing its weight around as well. Um, tech does mm. make it make these make these big monopolies uh, even more sticky and even more resilient. Um, but I want to want to switch gears and approach tech from a from a different angle and talk not about the the companies and how they're emboldened, but about the the people that work for them and how there are lots of risks and opportunities. Um, thinking about sort of the angle of automation and that changes things as well. I wondered where you saw that developing in the long term and what the implications might be for for, for trade and, and for diplomacy.
0: Mm. Yeah, well, this is really, this is the big story out there, you know, I think uh, going forward if we're looking, you know, 10, 20, 30, 50, 70 years down the line, you know, what's the global economy going to look like in 2100? which is a long way off, um, uh, but it's not as far as as you might think. And, you know, this is what the big future issues is, you know, I see them are gonna be automation, artificial intelligence, and then super intelligence. Um, So there are a couple of big ifs before we even get to the point where we have to face these questions and can face these questions. And the most important big if is gonna be if, we can thread the needle of avoiding climate Armageddon. Because if we can't, uh, you know, in 30, 40, 50 years, we're going to have so many bigger problems than this to worry about that that nobody's going to be thinking about automation and artificial intelligence then, because things will be be pretty bad for other reasons. Um, and we can come back to that. But assuming we are able to thread the, the climate needle, um, we have to start preparing now for a future where automation artificial intelligence and superintelligence are likely to replace 70 to 80% of human remunerated jobs you know over some period of time whether it's 30 years 50 years 70 years that that's coming now that would mean a huge change in the way that people live or at least in the way that the economy works um, but the surprising twist of this is that the promise of it again assuming we we, we thread climate armageddon needle is what futurists call the abundance thesis uh, and the abundance thesis basically argues that that um automation and ai will make uh, the global economy so much more efficient than it is now uh that Uh, the price of basic needs, all of our basic needs, food, accommodation, entertainment, will fall to close to zero uh, over that period of time. So it will be much cheaper for the vast majority of us to just simply live our lives. Um, And that's good news. Now, it doesn't mean that some goods and services won't still command um, a scarcity price premium. So Desres Apartments, uh, the best divorce lawyer, the best interior decorator, the best opera singer. Um, all of those people and those places will uh, remain um, highly prized items, scarce items, and they will be priced accordingly, according to their scarcity. Um, but what it leads to is for, for everything else that we need, it's not gonna cost us much to pay for it. Um, and this ends up to the to this crazy scenario in which, Capitalism as we know it ends not the way that Marx thought it would with class war and the workers taking ownership of the means of production and so forth, but instead because markets and pricing as a means to ration scarce goods and services will just become much less important. Now, how exactly does that work? You're probably asking. Well, it works because, say, 20% give or take of of humans. Uh, workers will still be remunerated, the people who design the AIs, the people who manage the super intelligences so that they don't turn on us uh, and harm us. Those people will be so highly remunerated for their jobs um, that even if we don't raise the basic income tax rates, we'll be able to raise enough tax income off of that 20% that they'll be able to live like kings and queens which they probably will and will the tax revenue will still fund you, not just universal basic income for the rest of us which we we've, we've talked we've heard proposals about but universal comfortable income for the rest of us we'll all have a pretty decent standard of living even if we're not one of the 20% so i think i think there are two really really big ideas here there's the first in the
1: goods and the goods and services that we need become really affordable and that a we could get to a situation in 50 80 years that sort of people are, are born they they have a bit of education and they learn about the world and then they live a comfortable life pursuing their their passions um which seems like a dream And i want to first dive double click on the idea about whether that is possible because we've all heard i mean we haven't all but promises that the work week is going to Trend down towards zero have been, been flung about for, for 100 years. Um, and it seems time and time again, humanity figures out things that it, that it wants, that it didn't realize it wanted before. Um, this is a really interesting thing for me. I Back when I was in university, I did my thesis on future of work. And in Europe, at least, it seems that over the past 20, 40 years, when computers and AI and technology has been introduced to, to the workplace, employment has gone up because people find different ways to work and they're augmented by technology as well as substituted by it. Um, so it's it's a really interesting uh, sort of balance between being augmented by technology such that it's still worth you working and, and being replaced by it. And I wondered what you thought was new about technology today that meant sort of past, past predictions of, of nobody having to work, haven't haven't manifested as being true. What's new about technology today? You think that that means this is this is now a lot more likely.
0: Mm. Well, I mean, what what we're seeing uh, is uh, that the, this idea has basically come from uh, an analysis of of the pattern of automation. Um, what was automated first, and what's being automated now, and what's expected to be automated uh, in the future, and you know, originally only the most um, mechanical and and repetitive and simple Mm -hmm. tasks um, were automated. Uh, Now we've moved on uh, to a point at the level of AI that we have now um, where uh, even basic services tasks uh, are able to be automated and, and tasks that were previously done by uh, individuals with at least a, a first degree from a university. So, so, you know, drafting a basic business contract or, or writing uh, a, a standard legal brief can now be done uh, by a machine. Um, and what we're seeing is, is that um, these, these AIs, what makes them different from, from the first generations of robots is that the AIs learn how to learn. They learn how to learn what they don't already know how to do. So AIs have now uh, been able to compose music, um, uh, music that, that individuals find a certain percentage of those pieces to be pleasant to listen to. And if you didn't know otherwise, you might think they had been composed by a a live composer rather than by a machine. And of course we all have heard lots of music composed by live composers that we think is is terrible and never should have received an airing. So, So this is where we're, where you know we're kind of we're going that the machines will continue to learn and and the jump to super intelligence will happen when the machines start to think and learn so much faster than we do that at that point if we haven't given them the right kind of command instructions the the right god level instructions the the machines could start thinking for themselves and and advancing their own interests at our expense which could even result in in you know mass killing of humans which obviously we'd we'd like to avoid so so in this is the the pattern under which this this level of of technology has been changing Mm.
1: yeah no i remember when i was doing my research it was amazing to I think the first piece of AI music that I saw came out in the in the '90s, and this guy had I think there's an article in the NYT. Um, He he played sort of Beethoven, and he played his what he got on his computer, and people couldn't tell the difference. And then he told them, and something they go, "Oh yeah, I did. I did prefer the Beethoven." Um, (laughs) But jumping back to today, just last week, I saw OpenAI, openAI OpenAI.com, have released this incredible AI art generator, and it's. It's absolutely incredible the sorts of things that a computer comes up with these days. Um, but you've, mm. you've touched on probably the more important thing and that's artificial general intelligence, AGI, super intelligent machines that, that learn things they don't know, figure out how to learn. And the risk there is is huge, isn't there? Because the idea is if we say, and we sort of tell this AI, we want you to go and do this, if it's not aligned with the subtleties that we, that we use to make decisions sort of if, if we say go and get a job that pays you well and we say that to our kids or something they'll they'll know not to not to sort of rob a bank or something because because that comes up against other norms that we have but if we struggle to communicate those to AIs then we're in real trouble and we really only have one shot to make it work um this is something you've dived into a lot more and See, so bringing in the the diplomacy angle, what are the, what do you think are the big risks and sort of, if you could sort of outline sort of what the, what the big risk is, and then the role that the diplomatic actors have to play, I think it's a really, really interesting and important issue.
0: Mm. Mm. Yeah, I mean, this is, this is, um, this is going to be, you know, one of the, uh, the main challenges going forward. And one of the, one of the recommendations that I make in the, sort of the final chapters of the book in terms of thinking about you know, what do we have to do to get from here to there you know, safely and, and, and productively is that we need to think about what, what diplomatic forms we're going to need to, to deal with these particular types of challenges. And, and um, a number of thinkers have, have argued, I think persuasively that we may need a new inf- um, international institution and, and a regime around it to uh, govern uh, these major technology issues and uh, as well as, you know, dealing with flows of d- um, data information and knowledge, of, of uh, AI and, of, of, and dealing with, with, with super, uh, super intelligence. Um, and that we're gonna to have to recognize, of course, in, in the context of this, that, that um, we're going to have to deal with governments um, as well as firms that may have very different interests from ours and aren't necessarily going to, uh, you know, change um, their way of operating in response to our concerns. And, you know, certainly China is one of the big, the big uh, pieces of this, um, you know, we're we we um, we're going to have to deal with China about this and we're gonna to have to deal with, with the big tech firms that are based in China and which at least uh, under the, uh, Xi Jinping regime, as long as it lasts, government has, has managed to now exert significant control uh, over these large firms. And it's fine with them operating in the business world uh, as independent actors, but, but um, political direction really comes from, from the center. And um, uh, that's, um, that's a reality we're going to have to, to deal with. Um, uh, you know, China isn't going to go away, and we are going to need their cooperation um, in dealing with these, these difficult uh, uh, issues, but it'll have to be a very hard-nosed kind of, of negotiating based on a, on a common interest, in that, in that uh, the Chinese government doesn't want the AIs taking over um, or the superintelligence taking over China any more than then we want them taking over uh, U.S., Nor- uh, Europe, North America, mm-hmm. uh, UK, wherever. So, so there, I think there will be some common interest grounds on which to to negotiate rules for for governing this. Although there'll be a lot of of uh, potential um, you know pitfalls. And I guess I would say, if anything, I think maybe we may be in a better position uh, to negotiate with China on some of these difficult issues uh, after Putin's war on Ukraine, because I think if nothing else, we can say that Xi Jinping has seen uh, the resolve of the West, shall we say, uh, with respect to Ukraine and and can now not be having doubts that that we would take a similar stance if our vital interests are threatened elsewhere. Uh, in Asia, Taiwan, whatever, or or in, in other theaters of the Great Game 2.0, you know, Africa, um, you know, South Asia, wherever. So, so uh, I think I mean I'm not completely pessimistic about possibility of of uh, negotiating with 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 China over over these these difficult issues. It's just a question of getting the institutional framework right.
1: Mm. And I'd like to watch was to an optimistic end, because um, you talked about there are loads of common interests. China, as much as the West, doesn't want artificial intelligence messing up the world that we've built for ourselves. And mm. in the same way, China doesn't want climate Armageddon, as you put it. And the mm. solution lies in setting up frameworks for, for diplomats of from all sources, from governments, from big firms representing people to, to come together. Um, and I wanted to sort of just to, to close. If you wanted to to invite you to sort of sketch your your ideas for for what reform needs to be done to facilitate the diplomatic relationships at international level, at national level, wherever. Um, what do you what do you think of the key policy? Well, what do you think of the key things that needs to be done to to set us up to deal with these challenges?
0: Sure. Well, in addition to the one I'm I've just been. Been uh, discussing, you know. Here, um, I'll, you know, mention a few of the others that, that I, I I outline. Uh, you know, one you you're pointing to right off the start is is uh, the necessity of climate diplomacy uh, first, and and getting uh, governments to and firms to deliver on on their commitments and promises. And this has been a big problem uh, in, in the U.S. Certainly, it was under the uh, the Trump, uh, regime and, and, uh, things are better, but still not, uh, where they need to be. And of course it's now been set back significantly by, by, uh, Putin's war. And it's going to be a lot harder to get, uh, compliance with, with commitments, uh, I think until Putin is gone, uh, from power, but, but, uh, so that's out there. One of the ways that we can make, uh, climate, uh, uh, get climate um, commitments to be enforceable um, is by um, uh, doing um, using the WTO I think because WTO um, has the particular advantage of being really the only uh, multilateral organization that that has a built-in enforcement mechanism uh, effectively so if we if we tie Uh, climate obligations make them part of of the trade commitments of member countries, then if countries violate their climate obligations, um, they can be subject to trade retaliation by fellow WTO um, members. So, So unlike most of the other organizations, I mean, the Security Council supposedly had a binding obligation, but as we've seen over the past few weeks, the Security Council is functionally dead. Uh, at least, you know, for the moment. I mean, I'm, I'm in favor of, of removing Russia completely from the Security Council, maybe giving the post-Soviet seat to Ukraine, as some have advocated. Uh, you know, might be a way of dealing with that, but it's broken. Anyway, the WTO... Has been having a lot of tr- trouble institutionally recently, but I haven't given up on it completely. And you know, another one of my suggestions, more broadly, is that we need to reform the WTO, revitalize it, reinvigorate it, um, in part to really be able to take advantage of of the good features that it does have, such as having these these enforceable uh, multilateral obligations. They don't infringe on national sovereignty because countries pooled their sovereignty by joining the WTO in these particular areas. So it's not infringing on sovereignty. It's not supervening over nation state laws, but it gives countries the right of, of, of enforcement. They basically of re- withdrawing trade concessions if, if um, they are, are, are their rights their WTO rights, Uh, are violated. So it's a good mechanism. How do we reform the WTO? Um, A bit. Uh, I argue by making the the WTO institutionally more like the institutions of the European Union. The European Union, without going into it in great detail right now, but but the institutional structure of the EU uh, is somewhat uh, a form of accidental genius Uh, that that, uh, after the war, uh, member uh, government somehow came up with, it's the most successful supranational uh, body that's ever existed in the world. You know, the old joke, uh, a committee, a camel is a horse designed by a committee. Well, I say that you know the committees that sat down to design the EU instead of coming up with a horse, they came up with a unicorn. You know, and and we need to we need to leverage that um, really. So, so WTO reforms in the EU direction. Um, how to shield against domestic political unrest um, as a result of all this change? We've seen what's happening in countries. Democracy itself under threat in many places um social divisiveness you know class class divisiveness is a result of of all of this and and i argue that we need to start well while we may get to universal comfortable income in 70 years when 80 percent of the people don't have jobs but let's start now with universal basic income with ubi let's get that going in a lot of countries so that Um, Everyone has a a safety net to rely on, to live comfortably. We can afford it now in many countries, many many industrial countries, um, because we also have to start thinking about the the bigger social um, uh, questions of what what will people do down the line when they may not have remunerative work? How will people spend their days and weeks and months and years of their lives? people want to do things people naturally want to be creative people many people want to work some people don't want to work but but people want to do things that are creative and interesting and stimulating and don't want to have have years of, of boredom you know just sitting playing video games and watching tv all day and all night uh, there and, you know, and they
1: can't go into podcasts because then i'll get run out of business <laughs>
0: <laughs> there you go so so we need to think about what people will be doing but but uh one of the things about a ubi is that is that it unleashes a great deal of creativity Creativity by allowing all kinds of, of um, so people's ideas, people a chance to, to develop their ideas, maybe for, for small businesses or, or to become creative producers, artists, uh, uh, do things that they hadn't thought of doing, uh, and so forth. Last thing I'll just mention on, on, on all of this is, is um, uh, the importance of using public diplomacy or diplomacy in public more effectively. To communicate about these technology issues, which are still hard for a lot of folks to to understand. And one thing I can, I have uh, happy to, I wish I could claim credit for, I don't know if anyone in the European Commission uh, or in the White House or US Trade Representative's Office have sat down and read my book, but last September, they rolled out the EU US Trade and Technology Council, um, which frankly has a lot of stuff in its agenda items and, and its uh, sort of initial communiques, that sounded like it was lifted uh, right from ideas right out of, out of the book. So that kind of cheered me up uh, a bit in, uh, in all of this. You know, and I guess I'd say nowadays, public diplomacy isn't just conversations with the, the global public, it's conversations, it's diplomacy in public whenever possible. People want to feel like uh, they are at the table, you know, even if they're not making the decisions. People want to know what's going on in real time. Um, so that's a big a big piece too. So let me let me stop there. I've I've said a lot and I could say a lot more, but I know we, we uh, don't have super. To So
1: really, really, um, what I like about it is often people talk about issues and problems, and then they don't talk about solutions. Um, but I think it's really important to come up with ideas and to to introduce ideas to people and to, to encourage other people to think about the solutions as well as the problems. Um, yeah, so let's draw it to a close on that on, a, on an optimistic note. Thank you so much for talking to me. I really enjoyed the the discussion, and thank you everyone for for listening as well. Um, Jeff, you've got a bit of a giveaway to do for your Twitter. Um, if you want to, yeah, tell tell us tell us about it.
0: I do. Well, first again, Richard, um, uh, uh, so Leo, I want to thank you for, for, for inviting me on and giving me this chance to talk about this stuff. Cause it's been, it's been, uh, great fun and, and, uh, got me thinking about a lot of, a lot of, uh, issues again. Um, and as you mentioned, I just want to extend an offer to, to listeners, to the podcast. Uh, I have a, uh, limited number of free copies of the book. Um, which I would be happy to share with you for only the cost of postage. If you want a free copy, um, DM me at my Twitter. I'm at jeffpigman.com. Leo will put up on the, on the site, you know, the spelling of that so you can find me easily, but I'm, I'm not too hard to find on on Twitter. I think I don't have one of those weird, weird uh, handles or, or, or um, monikers. So, so uh, by all means get in touch and, and we'll figure out a way to, to get a copy to you in, in whatever part of the world you're listening from. I know people who are traveling to various places overseas. That's how I got a copy from the US to Leo already. So I'd be happy to share uh, copies with you and would welcome any comments on the book or otherwise, uh, uh, by all means, send send them to my, my Twitter account. Thank, yeah. thank you again.
1: Yeah, no, go ahead and do that. I really enjoyed reading the book. And obviously there's a, there's a podcast we can't cover everything this is a supplement to reading it rather than a substitute and who knows what technology will do so employment maybe it'll be but well, it will be one of the two we'll see um but yes if you sort of en- enjoyed the podcast if you'd like to sort of make your thoughts known co- contribute to the discussion head over to empoweredbelonging.substack.com, and you'll find a section on the home page about sort of all of what we've just talked about about jeff's book uh what we can learn from it and obviously a place for, for you to offer your thoughts as well um, I'd love to hear your feedback as well about the podcast. So not only in the comments, but if you'd like to do so anonymously as well, there's a it's a feedback form that I'd love to hear, you for, hear from you at. Um, you can find that at bit.ly, so bit.ly forward slash feedback dash Leo, um, both links as well as, uh, Jeff's Twitter handle will be in the description. Um, but for now, thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast and are able to bring up the discussion that we've had with Jeff. I'll um, bring it up soon in discussion with a friend or a colleague or, or anyone else. But for now, hope you enjoy the rest of your day.